This is TV Podcast Industries, and we're talking about The Boys, Season 1, Episode 7, The Self-Preservation Society. You don't understand. The thing about crossbreeding dogs, you get the right genes, you can get a perfect creation. But it doesn't matter how perfect they are. It's not enough. When I raise subjects without their mothers, they become violent, aggressive, downright hateful. You should have been raised in a home with a family who loved you, not in a cold lab with doctors. And yet, I turned out great. When I think what it's done to you, and what you can now do to everyone else. I'm sorry. I don't want your apology. All this is my fault. What do you want? What? What do you want? Forgiveness? Now? After you raise me like a lab rat? Too little, too late. I don't want anything from you, John. I'm just an old man thinking about his mistakes. I'm the world's greatest superhero. You're my greatest failure. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to TV Podcaster Industries, where we are talking about The Boys, Season 1, Episode 7, a.k.a. the Self-Presentation Society. I am one of your hosts, Chris, and I am joined by my illustrious soups in co-host and podcast superior something. I couldn't figure it out (laughs) as I was talking, but I am joined by two of the best men in the world. Gentlemen, why don't you introduce yourselves? Why, thank you, Chris. Uh, yes, I am one of your other podcast hosts, John. And I'm your other co-host, Derek. I'm currently preserving myself with lemons. Lemons. I'm preserving myself with gin. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm preserving myself like a pickled fish, much like the deep. Nice. <laughs> but I'm jumping ahead of myself. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us with TV Podcast Industries. We are here, and we want you to pop over to our website at tvpodcastindustry.com to leave us a quick voicemail and feedback on what you thought of The Boys Season 1 as a whole, because obviously the next episode is our finale. We are here for our penultimate review of this season. So make sure you jump over and leave us a voicemail or send us your thoughts and feedback at feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or why not jump over to our Facebook group TV Podcast Industries and you can join us and talk about the boys or any other shows that we cover to your heart's content along with everyone else but make sure you also subscribe on any soup or non-soup boys or non-boys podcast player and make sure while you're there to give us an old review a like <laughs> subscribe share etc etc I really want to get in 
and talk about this episode, so I'm speeding through our intro. You certainly so, are. I just quick question, Chris. Uh huh. So do you call girls non boys? <laughs> 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 but gentlemen, I am dying to discuss this episode because it is our penultimate episode, not of TV podcast industries coverage, but just of the boys season mm-hmm. one. So, Derek, do you want to give us your thoughts on the episode details? For this Absolutely. Week? You take a breath there, Chris. We'll uh, we'll take a couple of minutes on this one. <laughs> uh, this episode was written by Craig Rosenberg and Ellie Monaghan. This is the first episode that we've got two writers on the episode. Um, Ellie Monaghan has been a writer's assistant on this show and on Mr. Robot as well. So, uh, been working a lot in the writer's room. So, uh, this is one of her first major credits for, uh, for a TV show though as well. Uh, Ma- Craig Rosenberg, we talked about him back on episode four of this series. He wrote The Female of the Species, another excellent episode of the series. Good stuff. A great episode. Um, so I'm absolutely for Craig and Ellie coming back on board. Mm-hmm. And the episode was directed by Dan Attias. Uh, Dan has been directing since the mid eighties, right back to Miami Vice. Um, wow. Permarific. Uh, yeah. He's been around for a long, long time. Um, his episode of The Wire in season five won a Directors Guild of America award for best drama directing. Uh, and he's been nominated three more times for his work on Six Feet Under, Sopranos and Homeland as well. So really, really notable presence in the directing chair. Oh my goodness. That is like literally some of my favorite non-superhero or sci-fi stuff with Mm. regards to The Wire, Six Feet Under, and Homeland. Do you not like The Sopranos? I do like The Sopranos, but I I think it... uh... It insists on itself a little too much. <laughs> All right there, family guy. Um, well, I will say he has been directing since back in the 80s, so I may have chosen some of his directing jobs based on your preferences and your uh, okay. shows that you may have watched because he's done hundreds of shows. And I loved Miami Vice as well mm-hmm. growing up. Yeah, I, I wanted big moustache and uh, massive curly locks in a kind of a permy afro. Um, however, Magnum P.I.? Oh, maybe one of them had a moustache, though. Alas, I can't grow a moustache. And if I do, I then look like a South American dictator. Right. Well, let's see if your memory of this episode is better than your memories of 80s TV shows. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. Love is in the air with Huey Campbell and Starlight's blossoming romance. But not for long. With Translucent Dead and the Deep Exile to Sandusky, Ohio, the Seven become the Five and Homelander acts on Mesmer's intel. Bringing together the five, Homelander issues a call to arms as he blames events on Starlight conspiring with Huey and remembers Billy and Becca Butcher from a Vought Christmas party from eight years ago. With a phone call from A-Train, who has Huey's father held hostage, the boys realise they have been betrayed and they should never have trusted a washed-up suit like Mesmer. As they go to ground, Huey and Kimiko race to save his dad, crippling A-Train in the process. Mother's Milk brings his wife Monique and their daughter to safety, and Butcher kills Mesmer as Face meets Washing Bowl, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Homelander digs further into his past events with his social media manager, Becca Butcher. Meeting with Dr. Vogelbaum, it is revealed to him that Becca and his child died during childbirth. With events out of his control, Butcher calls in the CIA for protection. Armed with evidence from Butcher, Deputy Director Rayner confronts Madeline Stilwell and Vought International, just as she learns of another big problem, the super-terrorist Nakib. In Central Park, Huey tries to explain everything to her, just as Starlight discovers that love truly does hurt. (laughs) Bang, bang. Oh, yes. 
Yeah, I, I have to say I've been in love and it does feel like a nine millimeter <laughs> rear end being shoved through your chest sometimes. <laughs> um boys, what an episode. What so much to discuss. Mm-hmm. So let's jump into it. Uh so as always, let's each of us have chosen our most interesting boys moment, the protagonists, the seven moments, which is pretty much our antagonist moments, and any other outstanding moments from that we really feel need to be discussed from this episode. So I think I'm going to kick off our boys moments because this one for me was potentially one of the most unexpected outcomes of this whole thing, which was Huey versus Butcher. And I'm not talking about the fight of the century. Just the moment of the two of them when they, when we had everyone in the warehouse, we had Huey and Butcher basically about to go at it because Butcher is constantly riling up Huey and we have Huey actually push back. Yeah. It was just amazing. Like we never would, we've never seen this scene in the comics okay. at all. Essentially Butcher would always do his discussions with Huey and the two of them would have these back to back sessions, but without involving the rest of the mm. team. Butcher's MO is really kind of, and even we see it here in this series, it's always, he's going to do stuff, but he's not going to let everyone know. He's mm-hmm. going to hold all those cards close to his chest. Yeah. And seeing Huey like yelling at him. And actually bringing up his devotion to a dead woman versus a live woman. Yeah, absolutely. It's just really, it's hearing that, seeing Huey grow. And again, he's only been doing this, uh, what, a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. like two months at this point. Um, and he's gone from sniveling to a degree to, and by sniveling, I mean like he, he was probably, the most shocked, like he's talked about how he's been covered in blood more than any man should within a couple of mm-hmm. weeks. Uh, and then see him take on Butcher, who is, because of Urban, a- an imposing figure. Absolutely. No, it's a really, really good scene. I know it kind of follows on from that scene earlier on in, in the last episode or the episode before, uh, where Butcher was calling out the fact that that Huey was that sniveling character and he's, and he's changed and he's turned. You know, part of this moment here is Huey saying he's going to leave the team. He's walking away now, just at their moment before they're about to take down the seven, basically by all the information that they found and everything that they gathered. Um, Huey's saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go off and, and leave and run away with Starlight kind of thing, even after all the warnings that, that Butcher's given him. Um, you're right that that moment, that line from, uh, from Huey where he says, better to be loyal to a dead woman who, uh, who wouldn't know and wouldn't care. Isn't that right, Billy? You know, that moment is really like he's pushing every single button on this guy that could kill him in a half a second, like, you know? Yeah, that was, that was a great moment actually, where, as you say, Chris, uh, he stands up to, to, to Billy Butcher. And I think, yeah, that line is a real uh, moment where who knows what Butcher could have done there. Mm-hmm. I think the other great thing here um kind of connects with this Huey versus Butcher is that we see Mother's Milk challenge uh Billy Butcher as well. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, there's that moment when the CIA is called in. And I feel that with this this moment between Huey and Butcher and also Mother's Milk and Butcher, that it's almost like sinking in. You know, it's almost like a bit of therapy, like that superhero association uh, for collateral damage. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like he's had that moment where these two, in particular Huey, 
um, ha- has broken through. You know, Mother's Milk effectively calls him out over going to the CIA. He knows exactly that Rayner gave him everything he wanted except Homelander. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, you know, he challenges uh, Butcher in the same way that Huey challenges uh, Butcher about effectively allowing his dead wife to throw everyone else under the bus yeah, potentially. So I, I think this is, um, you know, is reflected nicely with mother's milk as well. I think these two moments, uh, it is kind of slightly defining in this series because, um, it's, it's that moment where you actually believe that Billy Butcher has taken on board what they've said. Mm-hmm. You don't really get that sense in the previous episodes that he's, listens to what other people says. He has a plan, he has a route, and he goes for it. And so far, up to now, there's been a bit of collateral damage going on. Uh, and now when it comes to, I suppose, the boys, um, he's finally kind of listened to what they've said. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really like this moment, for sure. I, I'm really curious if the... And I, I, I want to know what you think. Would the mother milk moment have turned out because we, we do see later on that Butcher takes on board what mother milk has talked about and the FBI do come and they do start working together with the mm-hmm. boys. Would, would that have still happened if Huey hadn't have challenged him and brought up the loyalty to his dead wife? Um, do you think I like for me, that's the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. So basically we or at least weakened it and then you the one that actually cracks it completely is Mother Milk. Yeah, I mean I think I think that's the thing. I-, I-, I think there is a bit of a cause like cause and effect going on there between them. And I, I think probably the bigger cause and effect is that these are people with their loved ones around them. And maybe that's the thing that triggers Billy Butcher in this situation, is that Huey's father is there and, and, you know, he's looking to protect his dad. Mother's milk, even though Monique is massively like cheesed off, uh, mm. with what's going on. Um, you know, her palpable sense of, um, dislike for Billy Butcher is certainly there. Um, but despite that, he's trying to look after his wife, Monique and, uh, his daughter. And again, it's family. You know, Frenchie is kind of... I, I don't know what's happened to Cherie. I think she's still in the wind, but I, I reckon she can look after herself. But, you know, he, he's he got this thing where he's baking cakes with the female, mm-hmm. which is really nice. So all these people that they care for are in that room listening to them challenge Billy Butcher. And in some ways, I think Billy Butcher is there going, that's what I wanted to do for my wife. I wanted to protect her. Um, from Homelander, but I never got the opportunity mm. because he didn't know what was going on. Here, this is happening to them all. Uh, they can do something about it to protect them. Yeah. And it's like, right. You know, after mother's milk intervention, certainly, um, he, he goes to the CIA. Um, so I, I think, um, yeah, I, I just really like this kind of, this change in Billy Butcher, but it's not like a complete about turn. You can sense he's doing it grudgingly. But it doesn't feel like it compromises him. Okay. I like it. It, yeah. it feels consistent with the situation. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it is the rest of the team that have turned 
butch around. I don't think going into that day, waking up that morning, I don't think he was going, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have turned down that offer from the CIA. I think he was going into the day thinking, as always, he's made the right decision to to do the right thing, thing and take down Homelander. And I think it is only when Mother's Milk says to him, effectively, you have no family left. And if the, if the collateral damage to what you've chosen to do is my family, you're dead. I'm going to kill you. Um, and I think that's what changed his mind about going back to the CIA to answer your question, Chris. Yeah, it's just really interesting because essentially at the end of this episode, the the boys are essentially funded by Stillwell. Uh, essentially, they've taken the CIA's mm. deal. Um, so all of those things, the safe house, the, the funding, the, the deniability, everything that Stillwell offered and agreed to with Butcher is now in mm-hmm. effect. So it leaves us in a very interesting place at the end of this episode going into the finale uh, that the boys are essentially a black ops team. Um, and what do they do yeah, with that? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, speaking of. The ramifications. Yes. Let's uh, jump in. John, what was your moment for the boys? Mine is the Christmas party. It's Christmas party time eight years ago, and there are seasonal ramifications, basically. Mm -hmm. Like when any family gets together at Christmas, in this case, the Voigt family, um, it doesn't always uh, end up with peace and goodwill to all men. And I I thought this was... uh, I thought this was really nice because you you have this flashback. You've got the deep, seemingly in a better uh, moment in his life where he's still quite the center of attention. Even Stillwell is giving him some attention oh, there, yeah. uh, at this huge corporate Christmas event. But it's that great flashback uh, where we see Billy and Becca Butcher together at uh, this 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 party. And, um, you know, we have them connect in with Homelander and, and this great kind of idea that she's been picked out by him because she's managed his Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. And there's a real nice moment as well with Billy saying, well, isn't that a bit devious? Isn't that lying? Uh, it's not you writing the Twitter feed. Um, just kind of making that point. Well, you know, whose view is this? If you get other people to write it, well, then. Is that the real Homelander? Yeah. And, you know, it's passed off. It, it's just a real nice moment. And, you know, he wants her to become, um, you know, his personal digital media kind of manager for yeah. all his different sort of digital, uh, platforms. So we, we have all this, but it, it just leads into, you know, the fact that Homelander has been close to his nemesis mm-hmm. um, and you're waiting for him to realize that in this episode in the present time. And we get that. It's, it's a really nice moment. Plus this Christmas party is the genesis of it all. Yeah. And we see, you know, other aspects here coming out, you know, we get to see uh, Mallory here um, in, in another flashback uh, through Mesmer um, and just her showing Butcher the file um, or from the CCTV in Vought. So, you know, it, it just explodes that that story out further yeah. as to why Billy Butcher um, is doing what he's doing. It, it gives him his, his cause. Um, and I, I thought that was really good. I, I really liked it. 
Absolutely. And in fairness to the producers of the show, I think it's even worse what's presented on screen than what was in my head when Billy was describing what happened to his wife uh, when he was talking to Huey in the park. I think what they've actually presented here just feels worse. I think just the idea of her being captive effectively uh, in the office for three hours um, by Homelander and, and having the CCTV footage of that presented to Billy, it just feels so much worse than I was expecting um, from the description of it. I don't know whether that makes sense, but I, I don't know. The whole, the whole situation just seems like a, a worse level. And obviously we'll have, we'll talk about more of what that led to in, in another point later on. But uh, I think just the whole moment of Billy realizing, cause he still seems quite innocent when, uh, when Mallory's approached to him just after losing his wife, he still seems quite innocent and it just feels like it absolutely breaks him to discover this about his wife. Definitely. Yeah. As I say, it's the crucible for all of this really, Mm -hmm. isn't it? So I I think I had to give mention to the Christmas party. Yeah. It can be the downfall of anybody in a corporate setting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In more ways than one. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, It's, it's so interesting to see. So this is a slight divergence, the Christmas party in terms of Becca working for Vought and stuff. Um, and what we see and how it kind of all plays out. It's a divergence from the comics. Okay. But I'm really happy it, this works. Um, the ramifications, uh, I can talk to you more, uh, in kind of Chris's corner next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I want to dive into a bit more there, yeah. but I won't do it on this, but it's definitely while it's a divergence, it feels a hundred percent right. And I agree with you. I like, they could have gone down the route of showing what happened in that room, mm-hmm. um, but they don't even show that. Oh, no, no, and, no, no. And that's, that's to, to be able to get that level of emotion across, um, the, the writers and producers and the director for this episode. It was just, it was, it's amazing to see because just with that one scene where Mallory shows Butcher, you see the man break further. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I, I've liked Carl Urban for years, yeah. but this just is, it's sensational to see him do th- this because it does show you again his acting chops. Absolutely. Um, like he, he really it comes across and even his disdain, uh, against Homelander is that disdain? His, I, I say disdain in the, in the loosest sense. In the sense when he meets Homelander and they talk about the Twitter feed, that alone, that for me was giggles away. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I've worked in digital marketing. I've worked mm-hmm. in social media marketing for years. I've done some of those gigs <laughs> yeah. and I've always found that quite funny. And he's just like, yeah, but it's authentic. I'm like, well, it's not. You're lying. <laughs> but anyway, that's your, your voice is being created by a marketing team and being put out there. Yeah. I really, really like that scene. I, I, I love that as well, Chris. You know, obviously we, we worked in marketing together at, at a time as well. So, uh, we both dealt with these types of, these types of things. And it does absolutely surprise me sometimes when there are people that think that somebody who's, very famous is sitting at their computer all day, all, all day sending out tweets. You know, they don't really yeah. do that very often. Not the bigger celebrities. And these guys would be massive. Uh, the capes that are on here, the, the soups that are on here are massive celebrities, but there's no way you'd expect them to be sitting down at a table on their Twitter feed, sending out messages to their fans. Well, unless they're deep who have absolutely nothing else to do. <laughs> so, or A Train who can, you know, send about 6,000 well, exactly. tweets every five seconds, you know. <laughs> well, it probably, he'll probably destroy his phone. Lag. He probably would. Yeah, it's all about that lag, man. Mm. 
<laughs> but Absolutely. speaking of one soup, Derek, mm-hmm. do you want to take us onto your boys' moment? Yeah, um, my boys' moment is Huey versus A Train. I think this is quite a massive moment in the episode. Um, I love how it's handled because we finally do get to see a bit of A Train's real personality or how he's selling it effectively to Huey, where he's basically, I think, the best, best challenge from it is saying to Huey, everything you did, you did on purpose. Everything I've done has been accidents. I didn't go out of my way to kill your girlfriend, Robin, yet you've killed um, Translucent. You've uh, you've led to the death of Popclaw. Everything that you've done has been on purpose, basically. So I love the challenge between the two of them. Um, I, I also very intrigued by the fact that Huey was able to tempt him to let his father go by giving him some of the uh, some some V, basically saying that he had some V available, um, still showing that A Train is completely addicted. Uh, we see some moments earlier on in the episode where we're just saying that he's effectively his superpower is dropping off. Yeah. Um, he's beginning to lose his power, and he's saying that you know a third stringer from another team would be able to just take his place on the seven now because he's so bad now and getting much worse. And if he doesn't go back on the V, it's gonna it, it could be gone. His powers could be gone, which is the first time we've really heard about anybody being like that um i wonder if it's because he got addicted to the v and that is in turn taking away some of his powers as well uh potentially that's it because we haven't heard anybody else being on v we haven't heard anybody else using v um since being originally uh infected for want of a better word as as children um Nobody seems to have to take a regular dose of it or anything like that, but he seems to do it. And because he's done it, it kept him being fast, and now he's dropping off because he's losing it. Is this just a form of withdrawal symptoms from from not taking V as a drug? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I I loved how Huey uh, plays A-Train like a fiddle, purely because he's an absolute addict. And it, it mm-hmm. it's like... It's the most immoral thing for Huey to do, but in that moment to save his dad, Absolutely. to, you know, get the advantage in order to kind of, you know, nullify A-Train, he's absolutely playing the best rule book. It's like feed the addiction, yeah. feed the the need that he's got. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in any other context, an, an addict, that is absolutely not what you want to do mm-hmm. uh, in some respects. Um, and here it's just, yeah, take it. You can have that one more hit. And I think uh, I, I just thought it was so manipulative. Oh, uh, yeah. But so clever to do it like that. Because I, I was there going, you know, how... I think all the way through this series, there's part of you that's going, okay, they've taken out Translucent with a plug up the butt, um, uh, you know, an explosive plug of, of C4. But you are kind of there going, well, how would they deal with Homelander? How mm-hmm. would they deal with the speed of A-Train? How would they deal with Queen Maeve? And all of this kind of stuff. And here is one of those answers. And, and it's actually uh, nothing more than, you know, um, playing on and abusing someone's addiction, yeah. um, and their psychology, and I thought, what an absolute spanking thing uh, to do. And I love that he's using what he learned from the race that Atrin had earlier on in the season, because he's effectively saying to him, "What's better here, the rush of taking V, or the thought that once you take it, you'll be back to being the fastest man alive?" Um, he knows that A-Train's been doing this to try and keep himself on the seven. So I love that. I think that's really interesting that he was u- using it that way. Also, huge props to the people who set up this scene while they're having this conversation, A-Train and Huey. If you notice in the background, the screen coming off 
um, where the vents are, and then you see the female dropping to the floor in the background of the scene. It is so yeah. good. It's like yeah. it's like Alien or it's like Predator. Yeah. It's something really good, where she's it? just dropping down in the background of the scene and then comes in with that sledgehammer to the knee. It cracks his leg oh, up. And yeah. That's brutal looking scene as his bone comes out through his uh, through his leg. And that's the last we see of A-Train in the episode. Um, where have they put him? Where have they stashed him? Is he just on the floor screaming of, uh, of Huey Sr.'s uh, house or... Where is he? You know, we don't have no idea. Have they have they got him in reserve for later potentially? Um, but yeah, really like the scene. I thought it was really good having the standoff properly for the first time. I think since uh, since we had that handshake back in episode one, um, they've seen each other once at Popclaw's place, but uh, I train didn't recognize Huey. And then this episode is where they're having their final showdown. The thing that started it all for Huey on on his path meeting with up with I train in this episode. So. I mean, dare I say it, the female and the crowbar is more deadly than the A-train. Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, for me, I, 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 circling back to what you're talking about regarding V, it, it's kind of like steroids when you're taking it so much and then, as you said, your body goes into DT withdrawals and you're, you're less of a man or less of a person before you started taking the steroids. So for the way I see or I believe they're taking the V is, okay, you're given V as a child and it gives you, it brings out this superpower. You can then, and you're, you're power, you're up to a certain power level. You can then start taking V as a steroid like substance, which is highly addictive. But the more you take it, the, the more addicted you become. And what comes from that then is this, um, basically when you stop taking it, you start going back to below the level you were before taking it. Right, right. That's the way I, I see them kind of playing. It's because you're right. We haven't heard of anyone else taking it and anyone else being an addict. Mm-hmm. So it just seems to be like A train was not, he wasn't the, the, the biggest of the big. He wasn't super at that point. Yeah. But he started taking the V. To get in, and that got him into the seven. And okay. He's been taking it since. Right. Interesting. Um, that's just kind of the way I took it. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting to see how it goes. I completely agree with you on that scene while the, with the vent while Huey is distracting A train mm-hmm. because I saw the vent pop and I was like, yeah. what? What? Like, what was that? What? <laughs> and I, it kind of, and then your attention is automatically drawn back to A train screaming. Mm-hmm. And you, so that's it. But then in the background, you see, the female and I was just like, oh, this is this is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am right with you on where the hell is A Train mm-hmm. and what have they done with him, or is he with the CIA? Because it the the timelines are a bit questionable. Yeah. Um, or do we in the beginning of episode eight see A Train like in the hospital calling Homelander? Uh, it's definitely going to be it's going to be an interesting final yeah. episode. Or was or was he handed over to the CIA, as you say, uh, potentially exactly. as part of the information for them? Um, yeah, we'll see next episode. I think we got to the end of the episode, and John turned around to me and was like, "Is Adrian dead? Did they kill Adrian <laughs> off screen?" Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think so. Is it now the four instead of the seven? <laughs> He's become the B train. <laughs> but speaking of the seven, oh, I'm I'm going down to F train. Well, yeah. <laughs> But speaking of the seven, let's get on to our antagonist moments, uh, seven moments. Chris, do you want to give us your seven moment? Yeah, I, I'm going to talk about essentially the deep. Mm-hmm. The deep <laughs> is um, in a deep. Uh, he is in the middle ass of nowhere. Um, 
and essentially far, far from the ocean. The closest he has is a lake. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love when the mayor of the town points out that we have a lake and just kind of goes, like, if you want to go down to the lake, and he just kind of points at his outfit going, well, obviously that's where we're going to be, you know? <laughs> um, I, 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 I liked how they're portraying the deep in this part because this is just so, it's so interesting. You see that, that scene where he's just walking around after the mayor leaves. He's just walking. He's got his per diem card because mm-hmm. he can go down to the get some froyo. Uh, and they do really good ice cream. <laughs> uh, and then he's just walking around the apartment and then he starts his memoirs. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, which I just giggled my ass off. It was just so funny to see. Because uh, it's just a blank page. And then <laughs> yeah, the hookup happens. But I was just going to say, yet the title is Deeper, a memoir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you get that impression that he's been sitting in front of that screen about six or seven times. And the, all he's come up with is the title. And it's just an E or at the end of his name. <laughs> That's it. Brilliant. Um, I, I really like where they took it with the hookup. Yeah. Um, yeah. First of all, for two reasons. Um, the first is... The horrific gills. Oh, yes. Uh, so this is, again, departure from the comic books. It's not in the comic books. Mm-hmm. We, well, it's not to our knowledge because we've never seen the, the deep never takes off his costume in the comic books. Yeah. So we're not made or he never discusses having gills. Um, so, and I just think this is, it, it's just funny. It's just like, yeah, of course a guy has to breathe underwater. He has to have gills. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so the fact that they like it's been a rumor for years mm-hmm. uh and no one's confirmed it and the girl wants to see it. Yeah. And then we we get taken into that scene with his hookup. Um and first of all, what? she the, the the lady has a a bit of a fetish apparently. Mm. Um which is interesting. Um but it's the dichotomy of what happened with Starlight. Yeah, absolutely. Versus what's happening with him yeah, now. Yeah. He it's, has, it's he has no power here in, in the situation. Um, again, and it is, he's absolutely feeling the same experience that he's, that he forced himself, when he forced himself on Starlight, he's feeling the same experience that she felt, uh, without a doubt. It's a, it's a tough old scene for, for, uh, for watching the deep because you can tell he just can't get out of it. He has no way out of it. She, the way she is, uh, she is sticking her hands inside his gills is painful for him, but she's getting off on and not letting him move at all. It's really, uh, yeah, it's a really well acted scene from Chase Crawford. I have to say it He's is really good in this series. It, it's really good. I mean, the, there was that moment where I'm, I'm kind of like going, is this just a fetish thing? Like you say, Chris, and, and I think it is partly that. And then it's also, um, or is this someone sent? you know, effectively to kill him. I actually thought that potentially he was going to get killed. Oh, okay. it, like it was this payback for uh, the accusation leveled at him uh, by, by Starlight. I, I thought there was kind of this, a vendetta type thing that had happened here. And, and this was the, uh, you know, assassin uh, disguised effectively. And, and this was going to be the Achilles heel. Ultimately right. it was his, his gills. Um, and it did. It made for uncomfortable watching to see, um, you know, yeah, the, the, the powerlessness. It's in the same way that he made, um, Starlight, uh, you know, powerless. Yeah. And it, it, it's just kind of, it was pretty full on, I have to say. Um, 
and and I thought it was really really well well done. But um, yeah, it was full on. So I was kind of quite pleased when we see him uh, in in the Seven Eleven in the local supermarket doing his shopping. Uh, after that, I was like, okay, he did survive because yes, yeah. he is a douchebag. He has kind of been exiled by Vought into Sandusky in Ohio. And, um, you know, he's only on $75 per DM. Um, there's not really much crime, so he's not going to be able to do much. He can't write his memoir. Um, and I have to say, um, just briefly coming away from the Gill thing for a moment, I absolutely laughed my head off at all the dead fish in the fishmonger's cabinet that he was walking oh, past God, just before yeah. he gets to the lobster uh, and what oh. happens with that where he tries to save the lobster. But it's kind of like, you know, here is um the deep. He, he speaks with fish. He wants to save all the fish. Mm-hmm. And he what's lined up on the fishmonger's counter but about a 100 dead fish. Yeah. Um, but, you know all packed on ice mm-hmm. and then he has his moment where um you know the the great escape goes badly wrong for that lobster now can i ask a question because we did watch the episode with as usual with our subtitles on and there's a moment where he's talking to the lobster where it seems to turn slightly sexual again and i'm <laughs> yep. i wasn't yep. sure is that definitely the way they intended it it's just when the, when the fishmonger comes over to take the lobster out of the out of the tank, you see on his face the horror when he picks up another one of the lobsters in in the tank. He goes, "No, no, no! I want that guy. That that one's my guy. That's my guy." And it, it suddenly feels it doesn't feel like he wanted to save him. It feels like there's suddenly a bit of a dirty conversation going on once again between the two of them. Um, is he seeking solace after he effectively has been forced uh, by by the hookup? Is that what it is? He's seeking uh, someone that knows. The feeling of a good pair of gills, um, potentially. Uh, is that what it is? It, it could be, because at the end of the day, it's a lobster, and it's not a freshwater one. Yeah. So uh, I presume um, all manner of stuff could have happened back at their little cramped I just apartment. don't want to think about it. And we don't have to, because unfortunately, poor lobster um, does you get well, exactly. served. Could have done a really good nipple twister. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I said I didn't want to think about it, John. And <laughs> uh, now you have. <laughs> but he is slightly reminding me of the vet from League of Gentlemen, who seems like he just wants to save every pet in the land, but on an in- unfortunate mistake of circumstance, he always kills every pet he's trying to take care of, which really is feeling like the deep now. You know, can it get any worse than this guy being shipped out of New York, his beautiful digs that he has in, in Vaught Towers, out to this tiny little hovel? where there's no crime going on. He's got his hookups who are forcing him to have sex with them in really disgusting ways. And now he tries to save a lobster who gets effectively a knife through the head. Um, does it get any worse for the deep now? There's a certain uh, large aquatic body count uh, piling up behind uh, the the deep for sure. Yeah. Yes, Dr. Chunnery um, from League of Gentlemen. Yes, yes. Yeah. so I expect many more fishy deaths i think there might be a few there might be a few we only have one more episode left so maybe throughout next season as well it'll just follow him around um 
And just one of the other things that you'll notice, Chris, I know you've, you've constantly mentioned about X-Ray. Go check it out. They've added in videos uh, and they've added in uh, making of stuff in the videos. Um, one thing that probably isn't standing out as much as would be if the deleted scenes were in the episodes, uh, the deep does have, does constantly have moments where he's chatting up women all the time. You see it at the Christmas party in this episode, but there's another uh, deleted scene from this episode where you see him chatting up uh, some um, lifeguards from the town. The uh, the the video that he was doing for the for the seven had him chatting up other women, but it seems like they're editing out all of the good things that are or the potentially good things that are happening for the deep, the places where he's anyway happy or smiling, and just ending off with these versions of his life just getting worse and worse and worse as the episodes go on, and rightly so. As I said, the first episode kind of set him up as a as a character I didn't like, so his life getting worse and worse and worse is kind of uh, justifiable back from uh, from these seven episodes, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, yeah, I'm not I, I can't sing the praises enough of X Ray. Mm-hmm. I want it in everything now. Um, Absolutely. And really spoiled that we'll go to something on Netflix at some point or on Hulu and it would be like, oh, <laughs> well, what am I going to do now? Let's just get everything on Amazon. <laughs> so I think that brings my deeps hookup point to an end. Mm-hmm. So, John, do you want to tell us your antagonist moment? Yes, mine is Lab Daddy himself, Dr. Vogelbaum, mm. uh, played by John Doman. Uh, I really like... Um, John Derman as an actor, I think he, he plays, um, characters really nicely. And, and I like that here, um, we have someone that is not afraid to stand up and say what's what to Homelander. And I think this moment where Homelander is with him, where he's trying to just find out more about, um, Becca Butcher. So, you know, he's been to Madeline Stillwell earlier to find out what happened to that woman. You know, he's he's not clear. He just knows it's kind of been swept under the carpet. Mm-hmm. He, he he doesn't have all the information. Uh, but Dr. Vogelbaum here um, really gives us a horrific picture of, of what happened after he raped Becca uh, Butcher and, mm-hmm. and what pain she she went through now whether that's entirely true is another matter entirely um because you know we see that he has gotten her pregnant he thought that he wasn't able to do that and i mean it did sound alien-esque of that he the 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 baby ripped itself out of her womb uh, and the resulting blood loss uh, she died on the table yeah. with then um the baby dying uh later on yeah. uh, on on the the birthing table as well so it was just a pretty horrific uh idea of the consequences of hooking up with homelander really but i i think the other great thing here is you know that is this fraught relationship between these two he is homelander's dad it's just that he's a laboratory doctor. Yeah. Um, and you really get the sense that Dr. Vogelbaum is not happy with his creation in that sense. And we have that moment where, you know, Homelander is strutting saying, I'm the world's greatest superhero. And the retort is, you're my greatest failure. Yeah. And he likens everything to, you know, he talks about the breeding of dogs and um, how, 
the the ones that you know you could have the best breeding in the world but the ones that are taken away from their mother um generally end up being angry and violent mm-hmm. and this is what happens with homelander so it, it's it's a real nice moment back uh in time with respect to homelander and i'm really pleased that they put this context around him again with um the x-ray there's a really nice moment where you see uh that he has you know, mother issues. You can now understand, uh, in some ways a bit the, the, the weird relationship that he has with, uh, Madeline Stilwell uh, and why he is kind of creepy affectionate around her. Yeah. And um, because there's a great moment in the x-ray where he's being told that Dr. Vogelbaum is his father. Um, but the, the, the tutor who's teaching him effectively brainwashing him with the stars and stripes, the American flag, um, the US of A, Thanksgiving and all that. He's like, well, are you my mother? And effectively squeezes her to death, uh, killing her. And that's not the first time this has happened. So this is a really interesting kind of psychosis for homelander and it it really kind of helps to explain why he is the way he is and uh, i I just thought this was a really great scene i I loved homelander i love um john doman and having these two together effectively talking about homelander's troubled past and you know to what extent that trouble has been forced upon him you know it's that nature versus nurture thing Mm. is it the nurture of being brought up in a laboratory or is it the fact that he's been genetically bred and the nature of the dna and the genetics has effectively uh, you know coupled with compound v has effectively made him a psychopath uh, which dr vogelbaum has maybe ironed out in other um different batches of this test compound yeah um and so you know that's another reason why he's his greatest failure because it's kind of initial work it's like if frankenstein had uh if dr frankenstein had been able to carry on the 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 frankenstein would have been um gotten better and better and better in terms of the stitching or the seamlessness of it all or what you know and that they could speak that they you know, they would be able to share emotion, that it wouldn't be the improvement, you know? Yeah. It, it's like, um, you know, from gingerbread to ice cream cone or whatever it is on Android. It's that iteration of of the laboratory testing and I experimentation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It took me a second, and I think that scene that you're talking about, the one, the deleted scene from a previous episode, I think that's actually quite essential to understanding what it is Definitely. that Vogelbaum is saying here about him being his greatest failure. Because effectively what he's saying is, from your, from you onwards, you were the only one that we left in a lab and eventually let out into the world because what you taught us was doing that creates a psycho. And you're so much of a psycho that we couldn't keep you behind bars because you'd keep killing people, basically. So we have to let you out and we have to keep you on a tight leash. But everybody else was put back, either back into their, well, they wouldn't be put back in with their own families, would they? They'd be put back in with other families. Um, that's why so many of them don't have parents anymore, effectively, because that kind of creates their backstory, <laughs> which is really yeah. interesting. Remember, we go through this with all of the, with all of the shows that we're talking about, all the Marvel shows that we've done, where you look at all the characters and you go, wow, everybody's lost a father or, or lost a mother or has problems with their father or has problems with their mother. This kind of does give you a little bit of context to maybe in this world, the reason why 
they have problems with them or the reason there's so many of them dead is because, well, they're not the real parents. These people were all yeah. born in test tubes. That's a nice little touch. Yeah. Uh, on the x-ray scene, I can't for the life of me understand why they didn't keep it in. I'm assuming it's probably a timing thing. Maybe. I wonder if it's something in the last episode that it couldn't go into that earlier episode because these are all Amazon Prime shows, so they can be and are, you know, a couple of minutes either way, longer or shorter. Yeah. Um, although I was watching John when he was watching the, uh, the, the x-ray scene and he was, he found it really tough to watch waiting for the kid to do something oh, really yeah. horrible. That's quite horrific. Like, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think for me, this episode can be summed up in menace because the boys have been, um, found out and they're kind of going to ground. It's the menace of what the soups that know about them now are mm-hmm. going to do. So every time there was that interaction, I just imagined laser beams, crunching of bones, uh, you know, fast fists, um, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, you know, I was thinking, when is Black Noir going to sort of crop up and, you know, do some horrendous origami kind of thing with one of the boys or mm-hmm. something. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was, it just felt this underlying menace and tension from this episode because the soups, the seven, no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reason I say I, I'm not, I, I don't understand why it wasn't in is because I agree with you. This really adds to this scene with uh, Vogelbaum mm-hmm. because you get the, you, you understand even further. So hopefully maybe there is greater explanation. Um, and, we, we learn more in the final episode. Um, but I, I think it really sets up the, the, the menace, as you said, John, of Homelander, of, and I, I'm a sucker for creepy children. Um, yeah. like Village of the Damned, yeah, like Children of the Corn. Um, I'll, I'll just, or the, the Shining with the two twins at the end of the, the ghosts, uh, at the end of the corridor. Mm-hmm. Uh, creepy children just, ugh. It's terrible. Uh, but for me, uh, this whole scene with Becca, um, John, you hit the nail on the head when you said, if that's what happened, all we right now have is the story coming from one man. And we know what lies and changes and twists. So I'm interested to see if that is what happened. Well, especially because he does say to Homelander, ask me any question and I'll tell you the honest answer. And you see Homelander scoffing at that. So that's an indication that us as an audience should also be scoffing at what this guy's saying, that we should be taking a little pinch of salt. And I think the absolutely horrific way that he describes it to Homelander as well, about, you know, this baby clawing its way out of the body of Becca and her dying in a pool of blood on the table. The way he describes it to him feels like it's almost over-exaggerated. For yeah, big time. So, so that Homelander won't go off and investigate it anymore. And maybe it will stop him from doing it to any other women as well. Um, potentially that's possibly what it is. I wonder if the reason why Becca was weighing up everything sitting on that bench for those three hours is because she was told she had to leave Billy behind to give birth to this child and take care of it forever behind closed doors in Vought Industries. So is she alive somewhere taking care of a super that was born inside her? Um, you know, that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. It's it's just interesting. interesting to see. The one thing I will say is, if that was her death, it mirrors the comic books. Oh, interesting. Okay. To a degree, yeah. in that uh, she died in a bed with the uh, a, a baby clawing its way out of her. Right. There you go. Um, 
So again, I really want to see the next episode because that uh, in every time in this series, uh, in the, the TV show, when I think they're following something and they completely twist my expectations of what's going to happen. And I'm loving that. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let, let's make it much quicker for you then, Chris. I'll call, I'll jump in here with my, uh, with my points. Yes. Um, just because you were talking about that menace that's coming from Homelander throughout this episode. My, my point is actually Maeve standing up for Starlight in this episode and it comes on the back of Homelander and how menacing he is with the five now. Yes. Um, after, after dropping down from seven to five, they've lost Translucent. The Deep has left the city. They're now down to five and one of them's brand new. Starlight's only just been with them for a month and it seems like Homelander can't trust her because of him making all those connections. What's happened? Uh, I love how he's investigated everything and put all of the pieces together to realize even though Starlight doesn't know it, she's been played for a fool by these guys, by Huey and yeah, all exactly. the team around him. I think that's really, really good. I was trying to work out as he was talking, you know, how far has he identified the plan of the boys here? You know, like he has Huey up on screen and then he stops and kind of goes, but it's not just him. What if he had a whole team behind him? Um, so he has realized exactly what's going on. He knows exactly who Billy Butcher is because he remembers him from the past. He knows what he did to Becca. So he knows why Billy Butcher could possibly be leading this team against them all. And he knows that Starlight is brand new to this game. So she's not been very good at keeping herself to herself and for the team. So um, I love the the phrase he uses as well to them, where he goes, uh, you've been helping these mud people rise up above us, just the disdain yeah. he has for normal human beings. Um, you wonder, does he know anything about his origin? Um, exact about his exact origin. You know, we know we know that he lived in a lab, but does he think he was born to a family and brought up in the lab, or does he know he was created with V? Um, you wonder about that because he has so much to say. And it's like as if he feels like he's a different species from other humans. Definitely. I mean, again, the whole talk from Homelander, I just loved. I, I mean, it summed up for me. I love it when he just as he walks past Starlight A Train and looks at Queen Maeve it's like unpredictable to Starlight unreliable to A-Train and damn right sloppy to yeah. Queen Maeve yeah. um, presumably referring to Flight 37 and then everything since mm-hmm. um, I think the only person that he still holds some respect for is Black Noir in there yeah. um, everyone else um, you know he, he's he's had um, enough uh, they've they've done too much that isn't uh, exacting and precise. And that's it. He is fantastic. It's like at the moment we're watching Australian um, Survivor, you know, and one of the contestants on that show, he reads the game absolutely so well. But as someone, I, I don't particularly like him yeah. in the show. And it, it, it it's the same here. You don't particularly like Homelander, but my goodness, he reads the situation. Absolutely spot on uh, and he's really good you know yeah. he, he does his his work beforehand he knows um what what's happening here and i i like that he accuses starlight because of course that's the obvious thing here everything started going to the wall the day she arrived yeah. and you know he absolutely thinks that the, she is some kind of co-conspirator with Huey and this group of, of, of men, yeah. uh, that have been killing supers, uh, and causing pretty, uh, much 
all the difficulty, all the issues that the Seven have had for about the last two weeks. Yeah, but again, I like that he is basically just calling her an idiot. He's not saying that she's working with them. He's not, she's not saying that she's part of their team. He's saying, you've fallen for their plan. And because you've been that stupid, you've put us all in danger. Um, but to the point again, though, that Maeve stands up for Starlight, she hasn't done that in the past. She's been left all on her own and all, all to her own devices for years. And now Starlight's here and she was going to do the same thing for Starlight. We saw a little moment last episode where she gave a little nod to Starlight to say, you know, it'll all be okay in the future. And now she specifically stands up for Starlight in front of Homelander here to the point that Homelander says, I haven't seen you care about anybody in years. So there must be something special about this girl. Okay. She's in your, your charge. If she does something wrong from now on, it's on you. So, um, so now they're going to be tied together effectively. If anything goes wrong with Starlight from now on, it's also Maeve's fault in, in Homelander's eyes. So does that take the protection that Maeve has worked so hard to get from Homelander? Does that take that protection away now? Which is what, what's intriguing me for the next episode as well. Uh, I said earlier on in the season that if anybody's going to take Homelander down, it needs to be someone quite powerful. And I think Maeve had the opportunity to do that. Does this now put another wall between her and, and Homelander now as well? So it'd be interesting. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that scene where she does end up standing up for her, that, that whole, the, the expose of the boys and who they are and how it breaks down each of them and the, the realization from A Train. The one thing I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into is Black Noir. Mm-hmm. He, he's the character that's just in the background. He's yeah. just, he, he's Mr. Vaught. He's snake eyes just, for G.I. Joe, right? Exactly. <laughs> he's just always there. He's the wild card. Yeah. That I, I, he's the one that I'm like, okay, next episode, he's going to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because we've, we've seen so much of him or so little of him or both from him this episode mm-hmm. or this season, I should say. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the next one. Just one episode left. We'll see what happens on that yeah. one. I think, yes. I think the other good thing with Queen Maeve, a little later in the episode as well, she's having a talk with Starlight. And I, I think it, it's, you know, whatever about the shock of seeing Huey's face up there from Homelander. You know, so she, she wants to speak to Huey. You know, Maeve also says, you know, what's our weakness? It's people. It's the same as with anyone. Cut them loose. That way you're bulletproof. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think that, speaks to why you know you have as well through this episode Huey's phone going off she wants to find out what is going on here Mm -hmm. and potentially then to cut him loose yeah yeah absolutely but let's get on to our other outstanding moments Chris what's your one so this one's a bit of a two-parter uh the first is Rainer confronting Stillwell Mm -hmm. um and actually that how that's played out which is we have Rainer sitting there, like going, "You're out. You're done. You are not going anywhere near the the defense industry. Mm-hmm. Like, we have you dead to rights. Yeah. And if you don't follow these conditions, you don't back out. You will do twenty five in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah. Almost up to a point, feels like, oh, we're getting there. They're gone. They've done it. They've done it. And then we get Rainer being pulled out pulled into um the situation room type thing yeah. uh where we see the confirmation of our first v powered um kind of terrorist 
Mm-hmm. We thought that potentially the female was going to be one of the only ones or that she was like the first of many, yeah. if you will. But no, this, this kind of shows that she was just one fraction in the, their, their superhero terrorist or super villain terrorist, um, army. Because she was the, was it the People Liberation Front? I think something like that. Uh, or the Human Liberation Front, or, uh, I, I think I'm just thinking of all the different Life of Brian, Monty Python, <laughs> uh, names here. Uh-huh. But she was, she was one terrorist group. Yeah. And what we see here is Nakib is a different terrorist group and he is now powered. He is now their hero, yeah. but in a terrorist. So it really, we go from, Oh my God, this is it. Rainer versus Stillwell. It's coming down to this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's done to what does this do? Because Rainer's going to have to like Stillwell's plan or Vought's plan of introducing who can take down supervillains, superheroes, mm-hmm. so they need to be in the defense force, has come has worked because officially now we have our first confirmation of a super villain. Yeah, absolutely. And Stillwell knew that was going to happen because when Raynor was was reading the riot act to her, telling her everything that's going on and telling her that she's going to be trading in that high class uh, suit for an orange jumpsuit. Great line. Um, when she says that to her, you can tell by Stillwell's face that she knows something's planning, something's planned and something's happening very soon. You know, I, I'm really intrigued with what they've actually done here. Did they really know that this was all going down today? Does that mean somebody's in the CIA feeding information to Vought International? Probably, because we know there are connections there. She's had phone calls from inside the CIA before. So uh, so potentially this is all set up to cover Stillwell's tracks and get the Seven back in uh, into the uh, armed forces. So, um, yeah, really interesting scene. Yeah, and uh, I, I think she, she passes comment when she leaves to go, I hope everything's okay or all right, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I definitely think she knows it's going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be really intrigued because, as you say, Chris, you know, this whole episode has had the setup that the CIA are now working with the boys, so the boys are now fully funded. So potentially now they're working alongside the Seven if this all goes the, goes down the way Stillwell wants it to happen. So uh, that'll be interesting to see how do you keep them yeah. on a leash when everybody's working together on the same side. Um, it, yeah. Additionally, the, the 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 question now becomes, who else is out there? Mm-hmm. How many yeah. more? Because this is just, so we, we know of two. Yeah, we know yeah. of one confirmed who's out there being a terrorist and now, yeah. or a liberator from his side. And we know female was the other. How many more are sleepers or how many more have been created? Mm-hmm, exactly. Exactly. That's it. I kind of imagine there's a whole sleeper cell across the US because the female was in the US that yeah. they've been brought in, um, through votes supply channels and that there's just all these different um cells terrorist cells uh throughout the u.s yeah 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 so well it's interesting to see um i'm dying to i'm hoping the first opening moments of episode eight will kind of address this new situation this Mm -hmm. new status quo um but uh so that's kind of really my main outstanding moments john um what is your outstanding moments for this episode uh, mine is, it, it's the meeting of, um, Starlight and Huey in, in Central Park. But I, I think it's a particular part of that. And it's the fact that, you know, we, we've had this idea that you've got ego, you've got psychosis, you've got, um, just pure, um, sociopath and psychopaths all, 
in Vought International, all as part of the seven, all these superheroes really are troubled people, um, on, on a, on a, on a scale. What I really like is that in, in this instance, as, as Huey explains to Starlight why he's there, what he's done, Starlight's first thing is essentially to do a citizen's arrest, to say, I'm taking mm-hmm. you to the police. That, of all the superheroes, you can see why Huey connected there, but it was done undercover as well. It was, you know, whilst yes, he did, um, fall for her because we have them, you know, going to the hotel at the start of the episode and you have those questions coming from Starlight, you know, why did you bring me to the hotel? Why not to your father's? Yeah. You know, I want to know that, um, I know who you are effectively because you've been a bit of a mystery to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact that despite all the explanation, her first thought is not to be a superhero and take over from the law enforcement. It is to just simply arrest you and take you to the authorities to be processed as, as you would. So I, I just like the fact that, you know, that links into that same kind of philosophy as Daredevil and Batman, which is, Yes, they're vigilantes, mm-hmm. but they will drop their prey off at the local uh, police department. Yeah, absolutely. Also, because I think if she brought Huey back to uh, back to the terrors, I think she even says Homelander would kill him. The the police would just yeah. arrest you and they'd put you through due process. But if I bring you anywhere near there, Homelander's just going to cut you in half, yeah, basically. Exactly. So, uh, so I think there's only one option, really, just arresting him and bringing him up to a police station and telling them what he's done. Uh, I do love the conversation, as you say, John. I really like the the fact that Starlight's asking the questions of Huey that exactly as presented to her by Homelander. And Huey tries to say and tries to give explanations, tries to give reasons why he did it. But all she wants to know is, did you kill Translucent? And Huey's answer to that is, yes, I did. And are you using me to get close to the seven? And the answer was yes. So, you know, there's nothing at all that Huey can say to her because she believes everything that Homelander's told her now. So, uh, so, and there's nothing he can say to, to deny it. Yeah. But the interesting part is we learn that she is completely not aware about Compound V Mm -hmm. uh, and her background. So is that going to come up? Yeah, absolutely. Where does that leave her? Like she's going to have to learn her origin story and will that at least right now her belief in Huey is shattered. Yeah. Um yeah, but definitely. as she potentially learns the truth about the other things, will that potentially mend some of it? Maybe. Um because for me, I I really want these I, I am shipping Annie and Huey. Right. Uh, like I want these two, like they are, it, it's Clark and Lois, it's <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, it's okay. Well, that's probably a bad, that's a bad one, Chris, yeah. analogy because they both die in <laughs> yeah, the end. Yeah. Um, well, maybe who knows? It is the boys. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to see with, okay, she tries and because at the end, Huey gets away. But it's really interesting. Well, what would she do with this new information? Yeah, with two gunshots to the chest of Starlight as well. You know, lucky Billy was watching over. And, you know, I kind of, I like that as well because Billy calls out to Huey and says, get out of here. And Huey does listen to Billy. Uh, when he get, when, when Starlight takes those two shots to the chest, Huey doesn't run back to see if she's okay or anything like that. He gets the hell out of there because he knows he would be in prison. He knows he would be taken to the cops. He'll try and find a way to prove to her. He'll try and find a way to tell her that what all the things he did were for a right reason, but I don't know whether it'll work out uh, for him in the future. No, exactly. Um, but on to our final outstanding moment. Derek, what's yours? 
I don't like seeing the death of a character go unmentioned on an episode. So my final <laughs> other outstanding moment from the episode is the loss of Mesmer um, as a character, because I think this is one of the most brutal deaths in a way that we've seen in the season so far. Um, particularly because of the conversation that's going on between Billy Butcher and Mesmer as, as Billy tracks him down to the train station, tracks him down to the, to the bathroom effectively grabs him and starts beating on him and then we see these little flashes that mesmer's getting into billy butcher's past yeah and he says to him i can help you find your wife but billy's not going to give him the opportunity to do so um he basically it feels like billy tells him and it's not it's not on screen but it's my read of the situation it feels like billy tells him i'm going to kill you in a second as Mesmer's trying to read his mind, because that's when the fear comes into Mesmer. Uh, that's why he looks so terrified of Billy when he picks him up and plants him through that sink multiple times. He looks absolutely terrified before Billy even goes near him, uh, just after touching him for the last time, effectively. So it looks so brutal. It looks really, really violent mentally, plus physically afterwards. So, uh, so yeah, Billy was completely let down by another soup even though he had no, no involvement in it, he's the one that was able to connect all the dots to find out how they were found out by the Seven. It was all because the guys used Mesmer in the past. He told them never to use soups. And once again, a soup has portrayed Billy Butcher and he's not going to let uh, that go by without doing something about it. So, uh, yeah, pretty brutal, big moment, I think, uh, showing how brutal Billy really is when unleashed on the soups. Yeah, because this is without... As powers, mm-hmm. can you imagine if Butcher is given V, like what he's going to be able to do? Oh, I hope that doesn't happen in the next episode. I don't want that to happen. <laughs> I want him to be the human versus the V-powered superheroes. That's that's what I want to happen. He can he yeah. can, he ha- he can and has killed a couple of superheroes there uh, in this show. So yeah. uh, who are V-powered? Some of them not powerful, as in punching, but some of them with powers. So um, so I'm hoping they don't they don't just do a Superman 4 and have him injected with Superman powers to fight Superman. Uh, I don't think it can be that. I have this feeling that there's going to be some kind of kryptonite that we've just not heard about. Or Dr. Vogelbaum has probably put a small explosive device mm-hmm. just behind, uh, you know, his, his left earlobe right. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So that his head the just The MacGuffin, if you will. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, because, yeah... You can imagine that if Homelander really wanted to, uh, very quickly, um, all of those guys will be dead. Yeah, I think that's one of the things you kind of learn throughout the series here, isn't it? That um, everybody kind of tiptoes a little bit around Homelander. They treat him with far more respect than they treat other people because they know if he loses it, everybody loses their lives, basically. You know, we heard that from Rainer before. This guy can can take out a thousand people in in a split second, so... You need to be careful about how you're dealing with them. So uh, I don't know whether Billy's going to have that that same restraint if he goes up against uh, against Homelander, or will he just be cut in half by uh, by the laser beamed eyes uh, in the future? But I did love this scene between uh, between him and Mesmer because it just shows you at this stage it's eight years on. He could have had an opportunity there for Mesmer to at least been able to find the truth about what happened to his wife. Remember, that's what happened on the TV show. That's how Mesmer used his powers on the TV show, was finding bodies and finding uh, people that were kidnapped. So Mesmer could have potentially used his powers to help Billy Butcher put to rest that story of what happened to his wife, but he's not willing to do that. He's just going to kill him uh, for what he did to his team. So uh, I thought that was really, really interesting, very, uh, very intriguing to see what happens in the future. That's it for our moments, I think, for the episode. Yeah. Any notes? I... I- one quick one. We get Jinx. 
um, which is Scottish slang. We get that from Huey's dad mm-hmm. in this episode. Uh, and the reason – this is just a pure Easter egg from the comic books, which is in the comic books, Huey uses this consistently. Oh, right. Uh, it's Scottish slang. No, they swear in the comic books, but mm-hmm. it's just Huey's way of swearing, if you will. Interesting. Um, so we don't get Huey saying it. We do get his dad, which is just a nice little touch. Interesting. I always thought that was what Velma said in, uh, in Scooby-Doo. That's jinkies. There you go. Very close. <laughs> so I've just searched that up. It's an exclamation in Scottish uh, used to express surprise. There you go. Excellent. Any other notes? One note for me for this episode, um, because it's awesome seeing Bones and Scotty back on screen again together. Yeah, that's a great moment. Yeah, Simon Pegg and Carl Urban uh, back on screen side by side. Uh, I don't think they spent very much time together on the Star Trek movies. Um, even in the one that Simon Pegg wrote, the last one, uh, where he kind of had moments with everybody because he was writing the movie, so he put himself in scenes with almost everybody in the film. Um, that's not that's not actually true. That's a bit of a joke. Uh, but I don't think he had very many moments with Carl Urban on on the screen on screen uh, during Star Trek. But I know the cast actually got on quite well, so uh, so it was kind of cool just to have that moment where they just stand and look at each other for a split second and then say hello, nice to meet you, kind of thing. <laughs> just I always like those kind of little crossover moments. Uh, anything from you, John? No, nothing from myself. Dare I say it? It's on to the podcast within a podcast. Chris's Corner. It is. Welcome, one and all. We're still working on our theme tune to Chris's Corner, so any of you musically talented people, feel free to send in your submissions and we will include it as our theme song. But right now, because I know so many of you are so happy with my uh, musically challenged theme songs, I'm going to give you... The death metal version of Chris's Corner. There you go. And that's going to hurt my voice for a while. Uh, but that was Chris's Corner in death metal. Anyway, Chris's Corner today, we're going to talk about Mallory because we're introduced to Grace Mallory uh, in this episode. And uh, that is a slight departure. Uh, Mallory is a central character in we've uh the comic books we've heard about uh the mallory files uh the one thing is that she has been gender swapped um in in the comic books uh he is lieutenant colonel greg d mallory Mm -hmm. um but in the now obviously in the series they've called her grace mallory so that's just the main departure um and that's the only thing because we've only got a glimpse essentially uh, in the comic books which i'll quickly focus in on just to give you some of the quick quick touches of Mallory and who he was uh, without hopefully giving away too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as I said, uh, Colonel Mallory, Lieutenant Colonel Mallory, um, was the actual original team leader of the boys. He created the boys. Mm-hmm. And um, he was only mentioned um, and uh, talked about uh, in the comic books for all the way up to about 48 issues. Um, we don't actually get introduced uh, and we don't actually meet Mallory face to face until issue 49. Mm. Um, so it's the quite similar here, which is we keep hearing about Mallory and the Mallory files and we kept hearing different things about this person, Mallory. And it's not until well into the series, in this case, issue 49, that we meet Mallory. Interestingly enough, when we do meet Mallory, he's in his 90th year. Mm-hmm. Um, but he looks 60. Um, essentially, Compound V has uh, slowed his aging um, crazily. Interesting. Um, Sounds like a certain director of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, like you, yes, it, exactly. Um, and because there is always that fun head director of Shield might have been the first super soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same here. Uh, Mallory was the first test subject for the new and improved Compound V, which came was brought over from uh, the 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 Germans uh, in World War Two. Right. Um, I'll, I'm going to jump on a bit in in we do get. The backstory of the boys for V1, um, because we're actually in boys V3. Um, this is the third incarnation of the boys. The boys, the history we get is that, and this is about issue, issue 54 and 55. We get the backstory of Mallory as he tells Huey everything. And it's essentially Mallory and his friend, uh, Rick joined the CIA after the war. Uh, because they wanted to do something about what American bringing superheroes into World War Two, because we find out that this isn't the first time that Vought trying to sneak or bring the soups into the war. They actually brought a, a, the initial first band of soups into World War Two mm-hmm. to the disastrous results, which actually caused the whole of Mallory's platoon um, to basically be killed. He was the sole survivor, right. including all the soups died. Um, so he basically joins the CIA because he wants to do something about them. Um, and he's considered the whack job because no one else knew it there. So he essentially becomes the first black ops kind of CIA. So he builds his own company and he makes friends with someone called the legend who I've discussed before. And essentially he's, he finds compound V he finds Vogelbaum and the, the story kind of continues. Mm-hmm. He then creates, uh, the boys two, if you will, um, where he starts to monitor police and liquidate quote unquote, uh, the, the, the soups as they, they step out of line. Right. And he hires butcher. As his muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, it, it's quite a similar scene to what we see in the TV show, um, where he goes to Butcher after the death of his wife right. and brings him in, Very good. shows him, tells him the truth, brings him in. And kind of from there, we see the, the, the team of the boys grow Excellent. because Butcher brings in, uh, Frenchie, female, um, MM. They all kind of come together. And then I'm just going to wrap up really quickly by saying, essentially, they continued being the boys V2 for quite a while um, until the September 11th attacks, which is mirrored in the the flight um, issues that we see in this series. Um, essentially, uh, everything goes to hell and the soups, the seven and Mallory, Mallory's boys V2 crash. And... Um, Mallory has uh, disastrous results. We've heard about Mallory's, uh, we've heard about the issues Mar- Mallory has faced. We kind of get touches it from, um, MM in the show. Um, but essentially bad things happen. I don't want to give away too much. Bad uh-huh. things happen and just basically Mallory leaves. He, he go, he, he's had enough. Um, and he disbands the boys. Uh-huh. And goes to live in seclusion. Right. Excellent. So there has been some okay. touches coming yeah, from yeah. the comic books, definitely. We can definitely see some some things that are aligned yeah. there. And I'd say we'll probably see a bit more of Mallory either next episode or next season. Yeah, that's next really season. interesting. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. 
Thanks, Chris. No problem. This has been Chris's Corner. Back to your regular scheduled podcast. <laughs> Boys, that is the end of this episode uh, and the end of our podcast. So before we wrap up, what did you think of this uh, the, this episode? Uh, I'm going to throw it to John. Well, give us your, your numeral uh, rating of this, if you will. Um, I'm giving this five post-coital pizza rolls out of five. Um, yeah, I, I just thought this was absolutely spot on. Um, you know, in a sense, nothing was resolved and an awful lot was resolved. Mm. You know, we've still got the big showdown, uh, in the final episode and yet so much was explained. And I think, as I said before, for me, it was just that, overriding menace that the superheroes know and what are they going to do how are they going to get themselves out of it how are the boys going to self-preserve and get themselves out of the crosshairs of the superheroes i like the fact that it came back to uh you know the cia and reina and them kind of taking control but vort almost being one step ahead mm-hmm. um i i loved Huey and starlight i i loved this whole um you know romance blossoming but effectively no sooner has it started and it's over you know just with the presence of billy butcher watching the hotel where they've gone into mm-hmm. and then everything after that is a complete and utter train smash effectively for for this couple um where she's been shot uh, at the end and yeah she really does know how uh true love hurts um and so does the deep ultimately um in that uh yeah he he gets a bit of his own medicine really um as as some form of rough justice uh, along with his lobster friend with a knife to the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just really enjoyed um, this, and I, I, I thought it was a great, great episode. So, yeah, five post-coital pizza rolls out of five. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, nothing nothing else to add. It's a really good episode. Chris, what did you think of this episode? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm the exact same. Uh, Derek, you've taken the words, and I should say, John, you took the words first. Uh, this is an amazing episode. I, I can't give it more, and I'm just dying to get into this next episode. Um, so... With that, it's about time we jump into some feedback. Uh, in our section, we like to call Frenchie's Letters. Yes, just me and John here for Frenchie's Letters, our feedback section for the boys. Um, Sylvie Carbono has come over to our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash TV podcast industries. She's catching up on the, on the boys. Uh, just once a week, she's kind of watching an episode along with us. So she's a little bit behind, but uh, she sent us a feedback on episode four and episode five. John, do you want to give us your feedback on episode four? Yeah, Sylvie for episode four um, goes, I was happy to have your podcast to listen to after watching this episode. I was shocked and horrified by the plane crash scene. That moment when Homelander just turns his back on the little girl and her mother, Queen Maeve wanted to save, was heartbreaking and disgusting. Mm-hmm. I couldn't speak or share anything about this episode since no one around my circle of friends is watching it. So thanks again for your podcast, guys. I really enjoyed listening to your discussion about the episode. Oh, did you guys notice Butcher's white French bulldog at the beginning? Just like in the comics, as Chris mentioned on a previous podcast. Yay for Chris. Uh-huh. My best boys moment was when Frenchie bonded with the female. I found it very touching how he somehow understood right away how all she wants to do is go back home. Thank you so much, uh, Sylvie. Yeah, for the feedback. Yeah, I mean, that airplane scene is just 
I think it's a work of genius because it does horrify you totally. Mm -hmm. And then it disgusts you in equal measure, especially when Homelander switches it around to effectively promote Vought International and himself as the defender of morals, values, or, or whatever you want to call them. So I, it is, it's a really powerful bit of TV, I think. Absolutely. And I think also because you've seen so many times in superhero cartoons and movies, a super Superman type character saving a plane from crashing. You know, it's one of those things that you go, well, if we had superheroes in our universe, they'd save that. They'd save the planes. I think they even had an Iron Man where he did the, uh, where he did the save of all the people falling out of the plane, didn't they? And, and Superman's done it before, but you have that moment with this character, Homelander's down there going, what do you expect me to do? Stand in the middle of the sky with no kind of any force to, to bank against and stop this plane? What if I ram all the way through it and kill everybody on board when people can see that? If we just walk away, everybody dies here and nobody knows what happened. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's a really, really brutal scene, but fantastically done for TV, definitely. Yeah, and good spot on Billy Butcher's uh, French bulldog called Terror. Yes, uh, I saw him terrorizing a... Um, I think it was a Shih Tzu or a Poodle of some sort in one of the the comics yeah, the that I, I'm reading issue. through. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, reading through the first issue, yeah. uh, he is certainly a terrorist when it comes to the female doggies, well, uh, for sure. He does what Butcher wants him to do. It's a real shame they couldn't put him in the show. You know, they say don't work with kids or animals. Uh, so I guess they've taken that literally and just put him in these flashback <laughs> yeah. scenes. Really hopeful that we get to see him in next season. At some point, we get to see a little bit of a flashback with Billion and his true companion, this little, lovely little dog, who's quite dark and evil as long as he's doing his master's bidding. So. Yes, <laughs> uh, you know, just like his master. Exactly. Sylvie also has some episode five feedback. Um, Sylvie says, catching up on episode five here. Sadly, still a bit behind you guys, but I'm guessing there. Guys, please, can we mention the great work done by Elizabeth Shue as Madeline Steelwell? Mm-hmm. I've been a fan of her since Adventures in Babysitting, so that says how old I am. <laughs> but wow, I love how she portrays Stillwell, Strong and powerful in appearances, very intelligent, but we can feel her fear when Homelander meets her in the parking lot. She's conflicted and scared. She's definitely part of the villain, but I can't wait to see where her character is going. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth does a tremendous job at keeping the Watchers hating her for a moment and then feeling for her at one point. She looks like she's babysitting a bunch of kids. I can only feel for her at one point... She's definitely level expert at manipulation, but her relationship with Homelander looks more like a mother versus her spoiled child and less like a boss versus her star employee. Absolutely cannot agree with you more. I think um, Elizabeth Shue plays the corporate bigwig really well, but at the same time, um, there is that palpable uncertainty. And yeah, I think you're right, probably fear with Homelander, you know, she knows that he's watching her. She seems to be able to give a level of control purely because she provides him with this motherly touch Mm -hmm. that he seems to be lacking. He seems to have had, um, you know, that maybe separation issues or just has been devoid in his formative years of loving parents. So that's the only way she can leverage herself um, over him is through being 
um, sort of disturbingly motherly in yeah. some respects. Um, yeah. You know, it is, dare I say, even less mother versus spoiled child uh, as much as creepy mother with creepy spoiled child. Well, yeah. Um, that maybe is a little too sexual for what is right for genetics. Yeah, absolutely. There is also that weird <laughs> thing of her being a really powerful character walking on eggshells all the time around him. Like she's effectively in control of this multi-level organization. She's doing a, such a big job in this organization. She's taking care of everything that's going on around the soups. Yes. She actually has to walk on eggshells around all of these guys in case, you know, one of them kills her effectively yeah, and exactly. explodes and kills her kind of thing. Uh, really good connection as well. I, I absolutely knew her from Adventures in Babysitting. I think we're around the same age, Sylvie. Definitely remember that. Yeah. But nice connection there that she's also babysitting all of these spoiled kids of soups as well. So maybe they cast her going, actually, she did a great job as a <laughs> yeah, babysitter absolutely. all those years ago. Definitely. You know, Really good. You can see that for sure. Uh, on this episode, episode seven, Bob Phillips sent us in some feedback. He says, I was her. Um, I didn't expect that turn over starlight any of them or indeed the cookery class and i also don't believe that baby lived for 10 seconds my best sum of moment is the deep getting an unusual taste of his own medicine a brief scene but wooden which made everybody crawl yeah a really good scene i mean it is uh, you know that lady is probing his gills in a way that he presumably has probed uh, other people uh, and dominated them so it really is um it's kind of tough to watch, yet you yeah. do realize there is an inherent, um, what did I say, justice? I don't know, but it's you get what you give kind of thing, mm -hmm. and um, he's having it back in spades, really. Yeah. Um, and it, it is. It's a, it's a tough one to watch, but I think it's really good that the show does this. Um, I have to say, hats off. Absolutely. Uh, Bob continues, his best boys moment is Mallory. I admit I expected Mallory to be an older, white, straight bloke with thinning hair. She is the genesis of the boys, even if it's built on an honest untruth. As you probably heard from Chris's quarter in this episode, yeah, there is a very different character in the comic books, or a different a different person in the comic books. It is an older white male, exactly as you, as you would expect. So uh, an interesting swap they've done for the show, and I really like the character. Yeah. Definitely want to see a lot more of Mallory in the future, though. But I don't think she wants to see um, any of the boys again. No more action for yes. her, no, definitely. Will she be disturbed again? Who knows? <laughs> probably. Uh, Bob says his best other moment is Nakib. The plot to have soup terrorists is unveiled, and we are left wondering, will the CIA go with the devils they know, or the the deep green fire boy interesting yeah i'm really excited to see the next episode and see what's happening on there uh, bob has a question for chris's corner he says is the not good doctor scientist as unfeeling and evil as he is in the tv show uh, chris has said it's it is slightly different in the books uh, he's going to go through some other bits that weren't in the comics uh, in our final episode of the show but he couldn't be here for the feedback for this episode uh, i'll try and see if there's anything that um that he can add to to this if he hasn't added it at the end of the episode. Yeah, that's um, Dr. Vogelbaum. Yes. Uh, yeah, played by John Doman. Yeah. So hopefully Chris will be able to cover that off in the next episode, in our final episode, and um, the things that he that might be different from the comic books. He's not going to spoil anything about the comic books that you may want to read uh, after watching this season, but uh, just in case there's a couple of things that, uh, that he might be able to cover off about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... Um, I kind of really took him as being detached and uh -huh. not so much evil, but just that kind of, you know, Homelander ultimately, I suppose for him is the, the lab rat. Um, and yeah, that may be uh, a little evil. evil. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it, it is. But what I mean is, is that it, it seems certainly from this episode that yeah. you get the explanation from him why maybe he is detached or really not 
too interested in Homelander um, because of all the people he's killed along the way. I mean, he does say in this episode, you're my greatest failure. Yeah. So actually, maybe it's, it's that detachment because he is his greatest failure. As yeah, a yeah. scientist, he wanted to go to the moon and said he kind of did go to the moon, but he created a psychotic space shuttle, mm-hmm. um, okay. you know, <laughs> that <a> kills <laughs> the kind of like event horizon, the ship right. that kills its passengers. So okay. it's like, okay, um, not, not too great. It's an interesting analogy. Definitely. Yes. Uh, thanks so much for the feedback. Dr. Bob. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bob. Also on episode seven, Ray has some feedback about it as well. He says another fantastic episode, really enjoyed the subplot of the deep. It's comical, but also that non-consensual encounter with the fan was so wrong and so right for all the wrong and right reasons violent episode but it also has a lot of well-written plot threads and characters i really think that kind of sums up the whole show it's very violent but also has some really well-written characters you know uh, a couple of people that, that we have in our group over on facebook have said they're only watching the boys because they've heard about it from us and heard, heard about it from the coverage that we've done on other shows on tv podcast industries and they're all really surprised and all really happy at the show itself because they looked at the ads for it and just thought it was going to be this violent brutal show and the actual characterizations throughout yeah, it. Yeah, it's brilliant. So much heart, so much great acting, and so much great writing in it as well. You know, there's good, good bits of comedy, good bits of action, and there's a good mes- message going on as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think the th- great thing about this uh, series is that, you know, just by purely playing against type, mm-hmm. like with Homelander, like with Queen Maeve, um, you know, uh, against the, those superhero... I'm not going to say cliche is the wrong word, but the, those tropes i suppose in that sense playing against them automatically makes it i think really intriguing really interesting Mm. but the thing is it is absolutely so much more because um like with watchman it's looking at how that plays out it's looking at it with this situation where it's not just the evil people that will ultimately kill or potentially maim or harm uh, regular human beings, yeah. you know, and it's very much that, you know, it, it's almost like a bit with Marvel Civil War, you know, whose side are you on? Yeah. It, it comes down to that a bit. It's this idea, are superheroes a menace or are they um, something that we should worship? Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's great because it, it just, there's so many layers in this and um, it plays out in a really punk way i think and i i like that absolutely it's interesting you mentioned watchman because it was on the tip of my tongue that's exactly what i was going to talk about in the same year that watchman is coming to tv as a, t- a tv show you know it has been made into a movie in the past it started out its life um, as a comic book and a re- massively well-respected comic book got turned into a, a movie that wasn't that didn't get down too well with some people. They thought it was a bit overly long and a couple of changes they didn't like in it. Director's cut of that movie came out and it's now well regarded within comic book movies as being one of the best. And now a TV show is being made out of that set in the future with that as the backdrop to it. So um, so it is going to be connected to Watchmen, but it is going to be an original work done by Damon Lindelof, who did the uh, who did Lost, who was very heavily involved in that and did Leftovers for HBO. But it's going to be a much more serious show, you know, just like the Watchmen book. It's, it's a yeah. very serious look at the world if superheroes were in there. This has taken that style of it and gone, it is quite a serious look, but there's also loads of comedy in there and there's loads of fun to be had in there. So I'm wondering, will... Watchmen, which we will be covering on TV Podcast Industries, hopefully, crossing figures. Um, 
will it suffer by comparison to the boys having it's gotten an there interesting one, isn't in the it? same year yeah. you know it's a massively a massive show that's coming up from hbo who were who gave us game of thrones and gave us loads and loads of shows this came out of nowhere and really has been fantastic the boys on, on amazon prime it's come out of nowhere and yeah. been one of the best shows we've seen on amazon prime it's almost like this is a more digestible form mm. of, of that for sure because it's it touches um maybe some lighter notes it it touches maybe more action orientated yeah. as well as violence and horror and, yeah. and so on you know I, I, in some respects I, I i think that's it watchman for me it was really at the essence of um superheroes in terms of who watches the watchman yeah. as the tagline goes and i think there is an element of that here mm-hmm. but that's not the main focus the main focus is you know the the storyline it is focusing it is the same don't get me wrong but i do feel that there's a, a slightly different angle to it but i agree and i'm hoping that the watchman really um adds to this whole area yeah. of, of doing it. and but I know what you mean. There's there's a risk. Definitely. Absolutely, and remember, the, the Watchmen is massively different. It does come from from Alan Moore's perspective. He's a very political guy. He was talking about political systems throughout the US and the UK yeah. during the time he wrote it in the eighties. That those kind of political systems have changed uh, over the years. This is a, a show set in a more contemporary time than the original Watchmen was. So I'm intrigued to see if he's actually going. If if the show at least is going to be much more serious and much more political, is it going to be HBO's um, Handmaid's Tale for superheroes yeah. kind of thing? I mean, the original comic, in a sense, is a bit of a period piece now. Because not not in terms of its main thrust, but you know. It does talk about commercialization mm-hmm. of superheroes with toys and all that. The Boys just ramps that up to another level. Exactly. This is in the era of effectively Marvel, Disney, um, you know, Star Wars, all these mm-hmm. things that are dominating sort of cultural, um, commercial life so in, in the entertainment <laughs> industry. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, DC on the other side. Yeah. And, there's a question over that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it, I think? It is massively interesting, but we will have loads to say about Watchmen when it comes out on the 20th of October, just announced this week as well. So um, so I don't let's spoil all of our thoughts on, on Watchmen. Uh, really enjoying The Boys. It's definitely a different take than what I thought it was going to be when it started out. I'm glad so many people have jumped on board and are enjoying it as much as as much as Ray and as much as Bob and, and everybody else that's sending, us in, sending in feedback to us as well. Our final piece of feedback is a voicemail from Steve Brown. Hello, TV Podcast Industries. This is Steve, and I sort of got behind on watching, and so I'm not sure if this is going to make it in before you record for Episode 7. I'm fixing to watch Episode 8 again and send in some notes for that, but I wanted to get something quick in for Episode 7 of The Boys. And uh, this is the first episode I noticed that on the back of Billy's jacket, there's like a piece of tape. looks like it might be covering up a bullet hole. That was an interesting uh, costume there. And um, just how pathetic is the deep? I knew as soon as he started talking to the lobster and he asked the guy to take it out of the tank, I just knew, oh, that guy's going to kill that lobster. Um, so that was I mean, actually laughing as pathetic as it. He's just a pathetic guy. And uh, Billy taking Rainer's deal and then her trying to blackmail Stillwell Sitwell into uh, stopping the whole soups going into the military thing is, you know, all ramping us up to the last episode where we're going to wrap up the season and set up for next season, hopefully. 
uh, can't wait to hear what you guys thought. Talk to you later. Yeah, thank you so much, Steve, for that. Um, yeah, I, the the talking to the lobster I thought was classic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, like Ray said previously, you know, his storyline, the deep, is kind of both. It has a justice to it, but it's also deeply tragic. Mm. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, him talking to the lobster was, and ultimately it being, um, just well, killed. I, I think as well, as he's walking past the fish counter and all the fish are sort of dead on ice, but they yeah. look like they're swimming with him. I thought it was really classy, um, kind of bit of, uh, scene setting mm. here. Thought it was really nice. Um, and yeah, the, the, the leveraging or the attempted leverage by Rayner or, of Stillwell going horribly wrong. You kind of think just when they probably had the protection of the CIA, then uh, you you have the moment where super terrorists really bring it home for Vought International. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I always call her Sitwell when I'm writing my notes because of Jasper Sitwell from uh, from Agents of Shield. <laughs> <laughs> I always write down Sitwell. Exactly. I have to change it and amend it all the time. Um, really good feedback. Thanks so much for your voicemail, Steve. I know we have one in the bag for you for uh, for episode eight as well. So thanks so much yeah, for sending thanks, all Steve. that feedback. Back to us in the past to close out the podcast. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for all that feedback. Uh, don't forget, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail with your thoughts, you can go over to our website at tvpodcastindustries.com and leave us some, your old dulcet tones there. Or if you're more of an email person, don't forget you can send us your feedback at feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or don't forget we're over on Twitter at tvpodindustries. Absolutely. Make sure you get in any of your thoughts about the entire series to us. We've got one episode left of the show. We want to get any thoughts that you have in before our final episode, before we record it and before we put it out next Wednesday. Wednesday. Looking forward to that final episode. There's been so much going on in this episode that it's just shocking to think we only have one more to go. Really looking forward to that. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, don't forget, uh, we'd love you to subscribe at tvpodcastindustries.com uh, and you can write us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the love by sharing this podcast. We'll be back with our review of The Boys Season 1 Finale Episode 8. You found me next Wednesday. So from me, thank you so much and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to you next time. Yeah, as always, boys and girls, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, for $75 per diem, I'm off to uh, Sandusky, Ohio. I'm going to go and rescue some stranded fishes and crustaceans. Uh, but after my fish and chips and a nice crab fest, I'll be back <laughs> to speak with you again soon. Bye. I can't believe you go all the way to Sandusky to rub it in the deep's face and <laughs> eat fish in front of them. That's so horrible. Mmm, <laughs> crab fest. Terrible, terrible. Bye. Bye. Bye.